When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Prepare yourself for the only talk radio show you'll want to turn up. Crank this thing. Sirius XM Pandora presents the place where your hard rock and metal voice can still be heard. Unfiltered, uncensored, say whatever you want. Hit the record button. Anything can happen, you know. I know that ain't nobody out there came to be mellow tonight, now did you? I say, I say there ain't nobody. I say there ain't nobody not out there that even wants to be a little bit mellow now, is there? Anybody wants to get mellow, you can turn around and get the fuck out of here, all right? This is the Trunk Nation Podcast, Podcast. with host A. Trunk. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Eddie Trunk Podcast. New every Thursday, wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for downloading, subscribing, streaming, and checking it out. Bringing you in-depth interviews with some of your favorite artists each and every week. And we appreciate you listening wherever you get the Eddie Trunk podcast around the world. Thank you so much for checking it out. Hope you enjoyed everything coming your way. Last week, Lita Ford, Steve Whiteman. Some great stuff going on. And this week is no exception. Because this week, I've got a great interview And it's in-depth, and it's long, and you're going to love it with one of the noted producers in the history of hard rock and metal music, and that is Max Norman. I love talking to the producers. You get insights and stories from them that you rarely get from nobody else, and they're always fun to visit with and get those stories out of, and Max was no exception. Now, I've known Max for a long time, and he was very generous with his time, He kind of got out of producing records for a long time and then recently is starting to get back into it again. And he, as I've said many times to a lot of my audience, if you're a hard rock fan, you'd be hard pressed to not have at least a couple records in your collection that Max Norman produced, namely Blizzard of Oz and Diary of a Madman. We can start there. (laughs) So a lot of the interview you're about to hear focuses on The Randy Ozzy records, also a little bit on Bark at the Moon. You also get some Megadeth stuff in here, Lynch Mob stuff, Y&T. The resume is so extensive, I couldn't get to everything in depth, but there's some great, great insights that you are not going to want to miss, and you are going to be, I'm sure, riveted. So I was. I mean, I, I love talking to Max, and he's a great guy, and he brings in, he's great with his his stories and his insights about rock music. For instance, 
like you're going to hear in this interview how the I, I, I in the beginning of Crazy Train happened. I never knew that story. You'll hear it from the man who produced the record. Or did he produce the record? He has an interesting take on that, too, that I think you're going to enjoy. Max Norman, full, extensive interview for you here this week on the Eddie Trunk Podcast. And again, as I tell you every week, the podcast you are hearing, the interview you're about to hear, happened live on my Sirius XM radio show. If you're in the U.S. or Canada, please join me. It's called Trunk Nation. It's on Monday through Friday, live, 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time every day. Nightly re-airs 10 to midnight Eastern. And you can also catch replays and listen on demand anytime you want on the SiriusXM app. If you are only listening to this podcast and you're in the U.S. or Canada, you're getting like one-sixth of what I do on a weekly basis on the radio. So please do join me and come on board if you're not already and listen to me on volume on 106. There's also a sixth radio show on Mondays, 5 to 8 p.m. Eastern on Hair Nation. And also there is a terrestrial radio show on about 30 radio stations across America. Thank you all for your support and for listening, whatever you listen to, whenever you do. Also, don't forget social media at Eddie Trunk, Twitter, Instagram, fan page on Facebook. EddieTrunk.com is the official online home. Twitter and Instagram is where I am the most active. If you're interested in a personalized video, go to Cameo.com. Search my name and find my profile. Happy to make a video for you or someone you would like to send one to. I think that covers it for the most part. This is an extensive interview, so let's get to it right now. Without further ado, let's get to it. Producer Max Norman, he is my guest on the Eddie Trunk Podcast this week. Enjoy. And it is a great pleasure to be joined by my guest on our latest producer special. This is a guy that has been on this show a few times in the past and has always been nice enough to offer us some insights. A couple times we had him in the studio, but I have never yet dedicated a whole show to him where we really get into his career and his entire history. And if you are a, a fan of hard rock music, there is no way you don't have one of his records or several of the records he's worked on in your collection. It is producer Max Norman joining us right now on Trunk Nation. Max, thank you for the time. How you been? Everything's very good, very good. Thank you very much, and uh, always nice to talk to you again, Eddie. Very yeah. good. I see you've been. I see you've been busy out in Vegas there, building a house. That's nice. Yeah, yeah. Just trying to start start to think about my retirement plan and my escape plan, Max. <laughs> we all need. Oh one. Oh my god! Already? <laughs> oh my god! I'm, I must be a bit late on that one. Actually, well, I'm kind of working. I am kind of working on mine too. So you're right. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, just thinking ahead a little bit, not imminently, but it's nice to think ahead and have, have a bit of a plan. So uh, we'll see how it goes. But yes, uh, I've always loved that city and there's a lot of rock and roll in that city right now. So it's a it's a fun place to be, no doubt. Um, I, yeah, wanted, yeah. I wanted to, you know, when, when I do these things, Max, before we get into your discography and all the artists that you worked with and some stories there, you know, I always love to ask producers this question to start. And that is, where did it all start for you? Because the, the path that producers have taken to become producers is often pretty interesting, whether they were musicians themselves or live engineers or uh, whatever, whatever the case may be, how they got into that world. So for you, I imagine growing up in England as a kid, you found a path that took you into producing records. Can you tell us a little bit about that? 
Uh, yeah, um, when I was uh, in my teens, uh, I was in a couple of bands, and um, uh, it was very difficult in those days to, to, to get anything done. It was like, uh, uh, first of all, it was difficult to afford the equipment, um, and then it was all about trying to find somebody who had a van, and then usually the guy with the van didn't play very well. So, you know, it was a bit of a, you know, so there were lots of, lots of things in the way. So um, I, was, I did play for quite a long time, but uh, when I was about 18, 17, 18, I went to uh, Germany. I answered an advert in the New Musical Express, which you probably have heard of. NME, sure. Uh, yeah, and uh, there was an advert. They used to have adverts in the back for roadies and, and you know, all kinds of different jobs and stuff like that. And there was an advert for a sound guy uh, for a German man called Wind. And uh, I didn't really know how to do it. I'd done a couple of gigs with the original Skid Row, actually, um, the one with Brendan Shields and Noel Bridgman and Gary Moore. You were and in I that band, of... Max. You were in no, that no, band. No, 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 no. I, I did sound. For sound. Them. Uh, yeah, a couple of shows doing sound for them, and uh, that's kind of got me interested in the sound thing. And. Um, uh, Gary was just a blinding at that time, by the way. He was like, that, I'd never seen anything like uh, him. He was just 18. So was I was going to ask you about that, just for people listening that don't understand. There was a band called Skid Row in the UK, nothing to do with the Skid Row people know in America, and Gary Moore was in that band as a very young kid. And yeah, I would imagine, I mean, I think Gary's unbelievably underrated in the US. I certainly know who he is, and I'm a fan, and of course, he passed yeah. away a number of years ago. But even even at eighteen years old, he was a phenom, huh? Yeah, I, and the funny, the interesting thing was, I had um, I had bought from my local music store a '59 uh, Les Paul Special, um, and this would be, I suppose, I'm trying to think what that, what what year this was. But anyway, uh, went to see uh, Skid Row, the original first Skid Row from Ireland, of course, and. Um, I took, it was in Wellingborough in Northamptonshire, and I took uh, the, the Les Paul with me and showed it to Gary in the, in the dressing room. And he picked it up, and it was it just became a totally different guitar. And I, I, I was astonished by this, actually. This was a very germane sort of revelation for me. And I, I, I just looked at him and, the whole guitar just changed character totally, and it became Gary. And that's when I realized that, you know, these that it, it has nothing to do with the guitar, and it has nothing to do with the amp or the, or the boost boxes or the stomp boxes or the chip pads and all this other stuff. It's really all about the guy's fingers, you know, all about how the guy plays. And I, I, this, was, this was really was a revelation to me. I, I suppose I was about uh, 17 or 16, 17 maybe. And uh, so I helped out doing sound with them for uh, a couple of gigs. And then uh, I, uh, the, the band thing was very difficult, doing the playing thing. So uh, I decided to answer an advert for uh, in the NME to go to Germany and work for a band there called Wind. And this was in, in the very early days of, uh, of uh, big, big shows. And... Uh, uh, we had a WEMPA, a Watkins Electronic Music, WEM, as a British company uh, that was quite big at the time, disappeared now, but probably will come back at some point, like Vox and, you know, some of these older uh, 
Hollywood and some of these older brands. We'll put, it'll probably come back. But anyway, uh, we had uh, the mixers were five channel mixers. They had five channels on mixers, and we we had three of those. Three they were called Audio Masters, WEM Audio Masters. We had three of those, and uh, one of the things I said to the guy when I got there was, uh, I looked at the jack plugs that went into the to the mixer, and and they were stereo jack plugs. They had a, a tip and a ring, and then a sleeve. And I was like, well, this is kind of weird. And he said, oh, yeah, they're balanced. So I said, hmm, balanced. And, of course, in those days, there wasn't, there wasn't any internet. So I had to, you know, I had to try and figure this out. And I actually had a couple of electronics books. And I looked this up, and I realized that low impedance balance was how they ran microphones down long cables. So anyway, all these things started to impinge upon me. And uh, uh, I, I worked with... Um, wind i think for about four months out in germany touring germany uh in the winter months which wasn't any fun at all mm. but i did i did grow some muscles and uh, learn to drive a big mercedes truck and uh so that's how it all really kind of started let me let me jump uh, in max let me jump in there because i'm curious about something so going back a little bit you said that you initially started doing some sound for for gary moore uh, or for Skid Row, the band that Gary was in at the time, but but how do you even do that? In other words, as a young kid, getting behind a desk for a live show, are you just at that point learning on the fly? And I'll turn this knob, and that sounds good. Or or did you have a mentor? Did you have somebody to tell you that's how you set up your your console? Um, at that point, uh, no, uh, and the consoles were really just basically. Uh probably three or four volume controls. I mean, it's very, it was very, very, when I say I was doing the front of house, I mean, it was really just kind of turning up the volume, basically, you know, it's very, very, very uh, rudimentary. So not much but, different um, than running an equalizer on a, a stereo or something. You're just, you're just yeah, fiddling with yeah, buttons yeah. and balancing what you think sounds good. Yeah. I mean, you know, we probably only had, uh, you know, three or four microphones, you know, so, you know, be a, there'd be a kick mic and a snare mic and, and possibly a bass DI and possibly a mic on the guitar and then maybe a couple of, you know, uh, vocal mics, you know. So it was really very, very simple system, maybe four to six mics at the moment. So, 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 uh, did you, so did you have a mentor as far as an engineer and producer or did you go to any sort of actual proper schooling for it or did you just learn on the fly? Uh, no, uh, before this, the reason that I understood what was going on a little more than probably some other people was that uh, when I was uh, when I was about twelve, thirteen, fourteen, I had a I had a four track at home as an uh, Akai four track uh, that uh, you could do sound on sound with, which was a very early kind of sync, you know, being able to to play along with something. So. I was able to uh, put a track on there with a the guitar and then play along with it, you know, basically do an overdub. So I was already kind of familiar with the basic kind of some of these basic, you know, tenets like, you know, you need a wire from A to B for it to work, stuff like, you know, <laughs> stuff like that, you know, that, 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 you know, so as I, as it went on, I learned more, more about this, but I did have a mentor later on, right? At that point I did not. And I was basically, um, doing the completion backward principle, which is like telling people that you can do it and then, <laughs> and then learning how to do it very quickly so that they don't find out, you know, and, and being very frightened that they're going to find out. 
and the frightened part being the impetus behind, you know, learning as fast as possible. So uh, and I've used that many times actually in, in through life, and I found it to be a quite quite a uh, quite a good block against, uh, you know, not bothering to do stuff or not being able to do stuff. You know, uh, you just tell people that you're going to do it, and then you're basically locked into it. You have to do it, and then you know, and then basically if you don't know how to do it, you've got to learn right now. You know. There's a there's so, a it's re- reminds me of the phrase fake it till you make it. You've heard that before too. Kind of similar. Yeah, to that. well, <laughs> yeah, it's exactly it. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, and 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 it's surprisingly enough, I think a lot of people do that, and I think a lot of and and the the good thing about that is that you can you can hit you can you can drop in there with no preconceptions, and so you can learn some bad habits, but you can learn some good ones, and you and you can you can be out of the box too. So you know. You know, you know what I mean. That's a, you know, it's like thinking out of the box. So, uh, so yeah, it, it has pros and cons, and obviously. But later on, um, uh, okay. So I worked for this band in Germany, and then unfortunately, my brother was killed in a car crash when I was twenty, and I came back. Oh, okay. So I was nineteen when I went to Germany. So uh, I came back to England uh, for a few years uh, after that, and. Uh, then I worked for a cabaret band for a couple of years doing front of house sound. Um, and, uh, there was lots and lots of shows all over England, working men's clubs and uh, pubs and stuff like that. Uh, and then, um, I, uh, got a, I got a, a couple of other different jobs doing uh, like roadie stuff. Uh, I was, uh, Manfrey Man's Earth Band Spotlight Operator for for a little while, mm-hmm. for uh, and uh, you know uh, moved through a few different fields. I did some backline stuff. I worked for Ginger Baker's Gervitz Army for a little while doing keyboards, and uh, then uh, I got an offer to join a, a sound company, uh, Electrosound at that time, which was based in London. And then I did get a mentor, uh, uh, Mick Whelan, who was, uh, who was a very senior member of that uh, company, uh, no longer with that company. Now he works for a bunch of different stuff doing, uh, uh, I guess, uh, just consultancy and stuff like that. But uh, he was very knowledgeable. He's very knowledgeable about frequencies. And he had very good ears. He did sound for Robin Trower and the Beach Boys and a lot of big bands. And... Uh, he was he was a very he was a great character actually because he wouldn't take any crap from anybody. I remember him telling you know Robin Trevor. There was one show we were at. The, uh, so I went on tour with Electrosound, and there was a show. The, the second show we did was Shea Stadium with Robin Trevor. This was all huge to me. You know, I was rigging the PA at this point, and uh, I remember we did some place in the Midwest. It was just like a big concrete tank, and. Uh, uh, Robin, this is a Robin Trow uh, and Jethro Tull 6040 co-bill. And this was one of the off days where we just did Robin. Uh, and it was probably uh, about an 8,000 seat of a skating rink or one of these places. And we just, you know, horrible, horrible acoustics. And I remember being there at the sound check and um, Robin was uh, up there playing and, uh, they were they were going through a couple of the numbers and um, I guess it was the Bridge of Sighs that was the late, was the album mm. that they they were doing if you remember that sure. with uh, 
J- Jimmy playing Jimmy playing bass and singing. What a great, what a great, great singer that guy was. And um, I, I thought Robin was looking out at the soundboard and he's like peering out there. And Whelan is not out there. Mick Whelan's not out there. And finally, Mick comes, mo- mo- you know, sort of mooching out from backstage, munching on his sandwich. And Travis just goes, Mick, what's going on? And Mick gets up to the soundboard and takes his time and he leans on the mic and goes, listen, if you want to play in a toilet, that's up to you. But don't expect me to make it sound any better. And I was, everybody just froze. And I was like, holy crap. And that was the first time I ever heard anybody talk back to an artist like that. Mm. And you know, and, and you know what Travis just said? He just kind of went, well, Okay, you know, uh, and uh, that was a, that was the whole thing about Mick was uh, he he never ever took any crap from anybody, and that was another kind of lesson that I learned in the long run was he only grew in the stature of these guys, you know, because he wasn't a yes man at all, and he would say exactly what the truth was. He was exactly truthful, and I, I thought, you know what, that's 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 really a fantastic thing because. I thought, oh, you know, he's going to shit can him right now. He's going to like fire him, right? And of course, and of course, he didn't. He did the opposite. You know, he sort of drew him in even closer. You know, because he because he he, he got he had the, there was the trust got established that he knew that Whelan would not lie to him. And this was another valuable lesson that I learned. I was like, you know what? That's 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 really a great thing. And I decided then. I thought, you know what? There's no point in trying to yes your way out of it. it, it if it sucks, it sucks. You just got to own up. And if it doesn't suck, you got to say no. It doesn't suck, you know. So that whole truthful thing was was a was another great lesson that I learned earlier on. And, and I thank Mick Whelan for, uh, and uh, also my father was very very uh, adamant about you know never never telling lies and just being a truthful and you know. And I always found that to be the uh, to be the case, you know. So where so, does yes, it where does it transition into you making the jump into well, well, what most people know you for, and the, the first things you worked on was uh, obviously Blizzard of Oz for Ozzy. So, so where do we? How do we get there? Okay, so I'm working for Electrosound, and we're doing a lot of tours. I did a bunch of UI Heat tours with uh, with the late David Byron, even and uh, Tufty Thompson and. A lot of these guys are gone now, of course. Um, but uh, did a lot of European tours, did did some uh, US tours, and one of the things that happened with Electrosound was that it it it, it joined up uh, with uh, Tom Fields Association from Boston and became an international company. And at the same time, we expanded in England and moved to uh, uh, South London to a big place in South London, big factory. And uh, we had a lot more lights going on. We were doing Kisses Lights and Kisses Sound. We were doing uh, Bob Marley, doing a lot, a lot of big bands. And um, one of the things that was uh, uh, would happen was uh, I would go out on tours and be on tour with these lighting guys. And one of the guys I was on tour was, uh, was uh, uh, I can't remember his name. Hang on. Uh, anyway, the guy that owned Ridge Farm. So... Uh, is this Chris Tangaridis? No, no, Chris. Uh, Chris didn't uh, actually was just down there on the first uh, uh, on the first 
album. Uh, and uh, that didn't go that well for him, obviously. But um, uh, it's Frank Andrews uh, was the guy that owned the, the Ridge Farm. And his brother Tony had this new system that we were looking at called TurboSand. And Tony was the inventor of TurboSand, which is Frank's brother. Uh, Frank owned uh, Ridge Farm. And Tur- Tony lived on at Ridge Farm too, and they had a big... A uh, lot of stuff. They had a big workshop there and had all kinds of stuff going on, two or three houses, and, of course, the studio. So uh, having working with these guys, uh, as far as lighting goes, uh, Frank said he had a guy down there with some stuff in the studio, uh, just a, a small MCI setup, which was a, an old uh, manufacturer of consoles and tape machines. And uh, he had a JH... Uh, 26 or something in there and uh, uh, he wanted to buy equipment and put it in because the guy was basically splitting the deal with him and he wasn't making any money on it so he wanted to put in a better uh, console and a a better uh, 24 track and uh, etc etc so uh, I I went down and spoke to Frank and he started talking to me about it and uh, I said look I'll, I'll do the install and I'll put in all this stuff and do all the wiring if you let me be the resident engineer. Because uh, I was about fed up, been on the road for about seven years at this point. So uh, I wanted to stop loading trucks and get into the studio, you know. Uh, so he agreed to that. So uh, it took about three months to wire up the studio. And then we put in the second uh, SSL 4000E series uh, console in England. I think it was probably one of the first few that were built. I think the first one went into the Manor, which was Richard Branson's studio, Virgin Records studio at the time. And then the second one came down to us. And uh, so I wired all this up and we put all this stuff in. And then um, uh, lo and behold, uh, people started showing up. And, you know, uh, Ozzy was one of the first people. artists to show up there and, and uh, book time. So uh, I was there at the right time, at the right place, really. It's Eddie Trunk. We'll be right back with more with Max Norman right after this. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free. Shopify.com slash podcast free. Let's get back to more with my interview of with Max Norman right now on the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Of course, your first production was Blizzard of Oz. What an, uh, an amazing record and an amazing record to have as the first on your list of credits. So, so talk about that, Max, because we mentioned Chris Tangaridis earlier. Am I wrong in remembering that he was originally scheduled to produce that record? Oh, no, that's correct. Yeah, he came down and... Um... Uh, everything was set up, uh, I think. And uh, he's a lovely guy, Chris, and it's, it's very sad that he's gone now. And uh, um, I don't think this particularly affected his career that much. So, you know, uh, fortunately, it was a sort of a, okay, it's not working, you know, see you later, basically. Um, w- what happened was uh, 
uh, Chris came in. He put the drums down in. We had a stone room underneath the underneath the uh, control room, uh, which was like uh, stone walls and concrete floor and a concrete ceiling. But it was very low ceiling. It was probably only about seven foot, maybe slightly over seven feet high. So um, he put Lee down there with the drums. Lee Kerslake, uh, who, who did the re- drums on the first two records, and you're working, correct. you're working as his engineer at this point on the on the Aussie record. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So we we set him up down there, and I said, "Look, Chris, I said I, I, I got to say, I think it's a bad idea." And he said, "Oh yeah." He said, "I oh, said, why is that?" I said, "Well, because as soon as he hits a cymbal, the whole room's just going to go nuts, you know." So I, I said, "That room is so live, and the ceiling is so low." that, you know, you may, you just, I, I, to me, it's, it's going to be uncontrollable anyway. So anyway, he put them down there anyway. Um, and it was pretty uncontrollable down there. And it, it was just lots of splashy stuff and, and, and just everything, everything was in every mic. And it was difficult to make kind of sense of it. And it didn't sound that good. And uh, so uh, what happened was, this is an old story. I've told this many times, but I'll tell it again. Just for you. Oh, thank you. Uh, what happened? <laughs> what happened was, um, I, I was kind of horrified because this was very soon after we built the studio, rebuilt the studio with a new console, new SSL, new telephone and tape machine, blah blah blah. So, I was kind of horrified, and I was like, "Oh, this can't be happening," you know. And um, so I said to Chris, "I said, go down." I said, "Listen, you know what." Go down there, talk them, you know, talk to them man to man, you know, you know, get, you know, get the ideas through to them, whatever, you know. So he goes, oh yeah, good idea. So he went downstairs to talk to them from the control room, and I closed the door, control room, and I shut off all the headphones, and I rebalanced it real quick, and tried to make it a little more controllable and not not so like just because it just it to me it just sounded like a mess. So. Uh, I did that, and then the band would come up, and they would listen. They kind of nod around and be okay. We've got to do this. We've got to do that. Blah blah blah. And everything was okay for a few days, and but unfortunately, Chris didn't seem to be getting it. So I was like, and I'm not sure if he even knew that I was changing the balance or whatever. But uh, after about four days, I thought, you know, this is no good. I can't, you know, I can't. I just can't keep doing this, you know. So I stopped doing it actually, and so then after they would do a tape, they would come up and listen, and it would be Chris's mix, basically his rough mix, if you like, and they were got they were kind of looking at each other, and everybody got very nervous, and and I, I felt I, I didn't really know what to do, and I, I was trying to do the best thing, and then I thought, you know, this, you know, I, I really didn't know what to do anyway, so. They all looked at each other after one take, and then they said, "All right, well, you know, listen, we're going to take a break. We'll be back, you know." So, 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 so. And then, uh, so I was just sitting in the control room, kind of, you know, kicking my heels and just not knowing what was going on. Then I got a call from Ozzy on the internal, you know, intercom phone. Said, "Oh, I'm over at Tony's, you know, the inventor of Turbo Sounds. Uh, come over here, and you know, I want to talk to you." So I went over there, and he goes. He looks at me, you know, with a typical Aussie, you know, he goes, this bloke's not doing it, is he? And I said, well, I said, I, I'm afraid, I, I don't think he is, I, you know, maybe he's not the right guy, whatever, you know. And he goes, 
can you do it? And I said, uh, yeah, I can do it. He goes, all right, you're doing it then. And then he, you know, he says, I said, oh, okay. So it wasn't really any change in money or, uh, <laughs> or you know, I wasn't elevated to the, um, you know, to the level of super producer immediately, but at least I got to, you know, make it sound how I thought it should sound. So, uh, and then I guess he spoke to Chris and, you know, said, you know, basically said, oh, it's not working out, you know. So, and, uh, so let me ask you this, Max. So we all know that at this point in Ozzy's career coming out of Sabbath, he was, you know, he really had to be, uh, essentially resuscitated in life. I mean, he had been so damaged in drugs and alcohol and, and such a mess. And we all know that story. And then he gets to this point and this tremendous material comes in and this tremendous band with Lee Kerslake and Bob Daisley and Randy Rhodes. And now you're coming in to kind of save the day as a, as a producer. How did you find Ozzy at that time? Because it was such a rough time in his life and he was trying to reestablish himself. Was he very lucid? Was he together? Was he sharp by the time he started making this record? Or did you still have to really work to pull from him? No. Um, well, you know, it's kind of, uh, you know, a lot of people think that a lot of people have all these different views of Ozzy. And my view of Ozzy is that he is mostly very lucid. And he's a very smart guy. And he's a very funny guy. And I think that some of it is a little bit of a smokescreen. Mm -hmm. when, he, when he doesn't want to be bothered with people, he kind of, you know, he burbles a bit, you know, whatever. Interesting. But to be honest, I've got to tell you, to be honest, when I, when I see him now, he's exactly the same as when he was then. He was, he's always been kind of like that. And he's like, you know, fuck this, you know, you know, I, you know, he, he hasn't really changed to me, which is, you know, quite, kind of astonishing. But he's a lot more lucid than he seems. And, and uh, uh, people just think he's, like, out of it. But he's not out of it. And uh, I don't know if that's uh, uh, on purpose or just by accident or just by design or, or, or just by habit, you know. But, no, the guy's very smart. And uh, I've got to tell you, you know, as, as a singer, He's a top-notch singer. He was a top-notch singer in those days, and he's still pretty good. And uh, you know, for considering how long of a career he's had, I mean, the guy—the guy really is a really good singer. And that's really probably you know what's going on behind everything else. You know what I mean? So he wasn't—he um, uh, wasn't difficult to work with at all. Uh, and basically, of course, floating on top of uh, this massive talent. <laughs> this massive talented band, you know, that all of a sudden just seemed to fall together. And I wasn't there at any of the rehearsals or any of that stuff. And I only have a production credit on there because Frank Andrews called Sharon and said, Oh, you know, we should, you know, I think you should give him a production credit. You know what I mean? So, uh, I, I, in the, in the production sense, I didn't do any work on those arrangements or anything like that. It was really just surely as a uh, bouncing board for them to, try stuff and go, what's that like? And stuff like that, you know, uh, as more as an engineer than as a producer on the first record, certainly. So, and, and let me, uh, and let me ask you this. So obviously the other big question here is, is even though Randy Rhodes had had a history in Southern California and made a couple records with quiet riot for the world, 
Blizzard of Oz was the introduction for the most part to Randy Rhodes. Was this your first introduction to him? Were you aware of him prior? And and what? Tell me what it was like recording vo- uh, guitar sounds and 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 recording Randy Rhodes on that first record. I mean, what were your impressions? Were you were you floored? I mean. Take us inside of that because that you know you have an, a unique vantage point of having you know, having recorded him on what many people heard him for the very first time on Blizzard of Oz. Uh, okay, yeah, there's that's, there's a few questions in there. Okay, so the first thing is uh, no, never heard him before, uh, so had no idea who he was or, or what he'd done before. Didn't know he was in Quiet Ride actually, until, probably until after the second record, probably. Oh, you know, didn't didn't really pay attention to that. Um, somebody asked me the other week uh, they posted online oh what was it like to watch Randy playing the his solos and I had to say look I don't watch people playing solos I don't watch any artists I listen to the artists because if I watch them that's going to colour my my you know impression of what they're doing because when you look at somebody playing playing these kind of solos you're blown away I mean you, you can't help but be blown away the shit just is just magical stuff but if you're not looking, you're just hearing it, then you can be a lot more analytical. And the job uh, as engineer and engineer slash producer is to provide accurate, fast feedback after the tape uh, in these kind of overdub situations. So the guy's in the zone, you're in the zone, the guy plays the solo, you, you, you stop after the solo, and he goes, What's, you know, what's the story? Or you don't let him say what the story is. You say, okay, third section. You, you, there's a blur on that note. Okay, you missed this one. You know, rest of this, pretty good, pretty good. And, you know, that's really when you get into the zone. And that's what the artist wants, actually. They want somebody who's, who's, who's not impressed. They want somebody who's giving them vital and honest feedback and they want it fast, and they want it accurate. And, and that's what you get into. That's the zone that you get into. So that's uh, the zone that I would work with with, with Randy. And we would, uh, he would rehearse these solos, especially uh, many, many times. I, I would make him a tape loop on a half-inch tape, a mix of the, uh, of the track uh, 15 seconds before and 15 seconds after the solo section. And I would make about 15 or 18 of these on a big, long, you know, 10-inch, 12-inch reel on a two-track. And then he would be able to play that and then go and sit on the, on, on his stool in the studio. And uh, we had a pair, big pair of tannoys down there that he could uh, monitor on and with his, you know, obviously his amp coming through there. And he would sit there and uh, we would go up to the pub for an hour or two after dinner and he would just... Uh, be sitting in there and then I'd, we'd get back and I'd poke my head in and go and sort of just like, you know, nod my head at him and he'd go, you know, half an hour, half an hour. And then I'd come back at nine o'clock or nine thirty and he'd be like, okay, let's try it. Let's start trying it. You know? So then we, you know, then we'd start, you know, putting it down. And, uh, and of course uh, the other thing that was extraordinary with Randy was that once we got the right feel and the right, uh, the right notes and everything sat correctly then he would double it then he would double it again so so that we we could spread the correct 
uh, we could we could spread that correct track out to the left and right of the speakers. And and one of the things that bothered me when this was remixed and re-recorded, which it has been countless times, I have no idea, but uh, one of the things that bothered me was that I'm not sure that the guys who remixed it knew which track was the lead track of Randy's solo. And this is actually very important because because this is the one that had the correct feel. And the other ones were meant to be ghosted back left and right and not meant to be the... Uh, it, you know, to, to impinge as the main solo. So one of the things that always worried me was that I, I'm not sure that that was ever put right when they, uh, first of all, they replaced the bass and drum, then, then they took them off again. And, uh, you know, I know we talked about this. I won't get into it in too much detail, Eddie, because I know we don't want to get sued again. Right. But, you know. <laughs> well, 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 thankfully, the, thankfully, the good news is, is that, the, the madness of, of re-recording and remixing those two iconic records has been shifted back because the original versions are once again restored, to my knowledge. So uh, although some people may have those in their collection, uh, even Ozzy said in his own book that he didn't approve of that being done and was glad that it was uh, restored to the original recording. Yeah, and you know, okay, so uh, maybe we can clear, maybe we can clear this up a little bit because funnily enough today, um, uh, I was listening to uh, the Boneyard, funnily enough, and they were playing uh, Crazy Train. And okay, so my original mix of Crazy Train, uh, there's uh, right at the beginning, he goes, Oi, 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 right? Right. He does that. Okay, so the way Ozzy sings, he sings one line and then he doubles that line. So the way it goes, I'll give you the, I'll give you a rundown of how it goes with an Aussie singing session. You go, okay, first line, Oz, you run the track, you punch him in, he sings the first line, you stop. He goes, how was it? He goes, yeah, not bad, Oz. He goes, do it again. You play it again. You punch him in again, same line. How was it? I like that one, Oz. Double it. Put him on another track, play it again. He doubles it because he just sang it, so he can double it real close. How was, it? How was it? A little wide, Oz. Okay, do it again. How was it? Good. Turning good, that one, Oz. All right, next line. So, vocal take about five, six hours, maybe a little longer. We get a little slower towards the end if he's nipping at a bottle of Jack or a bottle of Scotch or, you know, something like that. But uh, that's how he does the vocals. And, okay, so we're doing crazy train and... All of a sudden, we're doing the we're doing the first line. So I'm playing this from like kind of the intro, with the beginning of the intro, the whole riff. So he goes, "Boy." So we kind of he goes, so I'm kind of laughing. I leave it on there, you know, because you never you never you know you try and keep everything basically. So I, I leave it on there, and he sings the first line. He goes, "Oh." How was, it? How was it? I go, good, Oz. He goes, all right, double it. So I'm coming from the beginning of the song again, and he hears this, boy, <laughs> and he goes, boy, after it. And so we start laughing, and then uh, we decide to put one more on there. So it, it goes, boy, boy, boy. So it was kind of a, a serendipity. It was kind of a mistake, actually. Cause he was, <laughs> That's he, amazing. He, he was... He was 
he was supposed to double the oi, but but he didn't. He didn't. He did it in the wrong place. So, but then we added another one to make it not seem like a mistake. You know, right? Uh, so so okay. The, so the whole point of the story is that I listened to it today, and it must have been it must be a remix because it went oi 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 oi. And it's what we call a ping pong echo. It's left, right, echo, oi, left, oi, right, oi, left, oi, right. Okay. So I didn't do that on the original mix. I thought about it and I thought it was a little more organic to just leave him doing the, the three oi's. Uh, so if you hear it with that ping pong echo left, right, then it's a remix for sure. Cause I didn't do that. So that, that's what I'm trying to work out. Cause I heard that today. And it wasn't loud enough for me to tell whether it was the original drums or bass or not. So I, I'm really not sure. But it was on the Boneyard and it was today. So I don't know which version they're playing. Yeah. But it'd be interesting It'd be interesting to find out, you know. Yeah, it would be what was ingested into the system. And maybe there's a, you know, it does have to be revised or updated or it is, uh, you know, the wrong version. There is some of that in the databases there that were ingested a long time ago that absolutely should be revised if that's the case but i'll see if i can find out for you you know i kind of <laughs> um i i mean there's so many other records and I, I obviously we could do a whole show just on the aussie records and i do want to spend a little more time because you did do aussie stuff beyond the first two records but you know i'm curious just in the interest of time and so we can get to some other artists were, were you aware Max, when you're doing these first two records, did it strike you how timeless and special that they would be? That that hearing Randy Rhodes, did it hit you at that time that, wow, this guy is going to be a, a generational talent that is going to be, even in his tragically short life, super influential? Like, did you did you acknowledge recording him that what you were recording were, was going to be as iconic for the long run as it's turned out to be? No, uh, well, you know that I, I I get asked that quite a lot, and uh, the answer is no, absolutely not. You have no idea at the time. Uh, you, well, I, you know, maybe you have ten percent of a feeling that you know, yeah, this is good. I mean, basically, uh, you're happy that the stuff is going well, and you're happy that they're playing the songs good, and you're happy that the songs are good, and you're happy that the lyrics are happening. And you have, you know, so you're just, you're really just happy. And, and, and like I was trying to explain before, you, you get into the zone. So you're really inside the bubble and you have no idea really what, whether it's going to work or whether it's not going to work. I mean, you, you, you make it the best you can. You do the absolute best you can. But at the end of the day, it, 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 it's not possible to know the impact, you know, and of course, hindsight is twenty twenty, of course, but. At the time, no, we, we didn't know. You know, we we basically, uh, I think Aussie, uh, I think Aussie got like thirty five grand pounds for, for leaving Black Sabbath, and I think that was the money that he came to Ridge Farm with <laughs> at the time, and uh, it was very inauspicious. Actually, the whole thing, everybody was very, you know, pretty laid back. Everybody was very ordinary, no rock star stuff at all. Even Aussie came walking in. And I didn't actually know who he was. I thought he was the road guy. I <laughs> thought he was one of the. I thought he was one of the road crew. And I said, "Hey, man, you go say." And I go, oh, "I go sit in the control room and making some tea." He goes, "All right, you know." We're just, you know, it's just sort of everybody's just hanging out, and and, and 
the fire only started when that band got in there. And that, you know, I got to tell you, Eddie, that was a good fucking band, really, really good band. Yeah. And you know, and uh, that that that's the end of it. Listen, you know, you don't have to be a good engineer if it's a good band. You just got to press record. That's the thing, you know. I mean, they're really, really good bands. So, uh, yeah, you know, uh, but at, at the time, you don't know, no, you hope. And sometimes you think, oh, you know, that, you know, this wasn't, uh, this wasn't like a, a doing um, uh, a, a somebody else that who was well-known and you're doing another record that's going to be, big. you know what I mean? It wasn't one of these sort of right. records that you do that where you, whether it already established, you know, you've got a chance of like, like me doing, for instance, uh, like doing Countdown, for instance, you know, we knew that that was going to be a big record at the time. We knew because we knew what had happened to, uh, the, you know, the previous the previous album. Uh, all the stars were aligned. Uh, we worked very hard on the on the uh, material and 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 the whole concept. Dave, Dave, exemplary worker on that stuff. Amazing lyrics and 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 great ideas and. You know that was another fantastic band. So you know when you've got a band like that with a history, that you've got some chance of, 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 of you know picking up something good. But uh, with the with Blizzard of Oz, the original one, no, no idea, no well, idea, and you know. So. Well, we're going to get to Megadeth, and that's the re the only reason why I want to move forward is because I do want to talk about other things because you do have an impressive resume beyond Ozzy. It's funny, a two-hour radio show, and uh, you, there's still never enough time when you talk to people who have the stories and the insights you do about so many of these records that we love. But I want to just button up a couple quick things with Ozzy and just get some real quick stuff from you on a few other fronts, and then we want to move on to the rest of, or just some other parts of your resume. So I had asked you this, you were on, I called in, because we were having a debate on this show, Ozzy, Diary versus Blizzard, what's the better record? You produced uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. you, you produce both of them. What what was the biggest difference between making Diary and Blizzard? Now Blizzard had success. There was a track record. You had had experience with the band. I imagine that was a big factor. I imagine there was a whole different level of confidence with that same band going into doing the second record. Uh, actually, yes, that's a very astute comment, and uh, it's absolutely true. Uh, yeah, we all had. Uh, uh, funnily enough, we just finished doing uh, Rough Diamond with uh, Bad Company, and they were just moving out of the studio, and, and uh, um, they were actually moving their equipment out. They, their guys were moving their equipment out as we were starting uh, Diary of a Madman. And uh, I remember feeling a great sense of sort of uh, warmth and homeliness that all these guys were coming back in, and we, we were going to start on another, you know, on another album because we had a really good time on, on Blizzard. And, and, you know, I mean, it, it, <laughs> the thing was, it was only three weeks. So, you know, from start to finish, Blizzard was really made in about three weeks and two days, maybe. So, um, coming, you know, that, coming, having them come back in made me feel very good. And, uh, we were, we were all, everybody was very up because, uh, Blizzard was doing really well, um, and uh, every, everything was working. So we 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 did have a lot of confidence. We had a lot, a lot of confidence in each other. Uh, there was no trepidation in my mind about Ozzy singing. 
uh, about anybody's performance, about Randy's play, and everything was just, uh, you know, all green light. So uh, uh, I, I think that that does uh, play into how uh, we we started to do uh, work on the on that second record. Of, um, uh, I tried to uh, expand uh, my side of it, uh, getting Randy different sounds, uh, uh, you know, working on the, you know, working on the, on the, uh, the space inside the track more, uh, as opposed to it being sort of more like, uh, I mean, Blizzard of Oz, there's a, a couple of tracks on there are actually rough mixes, um, because I couldn't get them any better. So, you know, uh, the way that was done, there are, there's no real embellishment particularly, and, and it's a very rough and ready kind of record, and uh, which is one of the strengths of it, obviously. And uh, so uh, I, there were a couple of tracks on there that uh, I tried to mix them again, and I just couldn't catch the same kind of feeling that I had on the rough mix. So I said to Ozzy, I said, look, I can't do better than this mix. I think this mix is good. And he goes, fine, we'll keep it, you know. And so uh, when you have that level of confidence with everybody and everybody trusted everybody else and, you know, uh, everybody, you know, we trusted uh, we trusted that Ozzy would be able to do the vocals and we trusted that, uh, you know, everybody would play their parts. And uh, uh, so uh, everybody expanded, I think, mentally on, on that record. Everybody started to expand, uh, I think, uh, Randy was uh, better at what he was doing. He'd done more lessons. He'd done a bunch of touring. Uh, he, you know, he'd, he'd done a lot more playing. And uh, I mean, that guy played every day for hours and hours. So, you know, every week he got better. So, uh, by the time he came back for the second record, this was all everything. Everything actually just just started to look like it was in a different league. And actually, it was in kind of a different league. So, that record took a turn for the more kind of, you know, product, product, you know, produced kind of sound, a bigger kind of sound. Uh, obviously, um, you know, the whole thing with the orchestrations and, you know, or, you know, and you know, the choirs and all this kind of stuff. And actually recently, I, I just must mention, I, uh, RIP to Louis Clark, who did uh, a lot of the uh, orchestral uh, arrangements, who I believe died in February, and I, I didn't realize that. I just heard that the other day. So rest in peace, Lewis. And uh, just one story I want to tell about Lewis. Uh, we went to Abbey Road to cut uh, the, the, the strings for Diary. And we were in Abbey Road downstairs, which is where the Beatles did the White Album. And it's the same console. And, it's, and we had the London Symphony string section out on the floor, 26-piece strings. And we had Louis Clark from Electric Light Orchestra who did all the arrangements for those guys. And he was, he did the arrangements for that. And uh, we're sitting there and the session was due to start at 10 o'clock and it was 10.15, Louis wasn't there and everybody's looking at their watches and we've got this three hour session booked. And Louis comes walking in at uh, 10.17 with two pints of beer, <laughs> one, one in each hand and goes, where's the copiers? And because we didn't have like copy machines in those days, so you'd have you actually have a guy writing these dots out. So this bloke at the back held his hand up, and Louis went, Right, 
he put both his pints down. He sat down at this little table, little coffee table, and he pulled out a bunch of um, stave, you know, uh, you know, music paper with stave on it, you know, music paper. And so he starts, he starts just writing the stuff out. I mean, it's like Amadeus, you know, because just starts writing it out. And he finishes one page, and he throw, he just like skims it over to the copier. The copier grabs it, and he starts copying it out. And then Lewis is on the second page, and he starts copying out. And damn it, 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 about 10 minutes later, he's like, right, let's go. He grabs a baton. The copiers go. They run out there. They start putting these papers on everybody's, you know, music in front of everybody. And bam, to about 10, 10.45, we start doing a run through. And I was like, I, I'm absolutely astonished. Absolutely <laughs> astonished. And we, we're all just sitting there. I'm looking at Ozzy, and we're shaking heads like, what the fuck is going on? I mean, we've just, nobody... You know, and I wasn't actually doing the engineering because I, I said, look, I, I don't know how to do this. You guys got to do it. They were like, don't worry about it. It's going to be fine, you know. <laughs> and uh, I was like, we're absolutely astonished. Well, and, and you know what, Lou? Wherever you are now, mate, that was that was like the, the funniest fucking thing I ever saw. It was really, really great. And, and we were all just absolutely astonished. It was it was the most marvelous thing. We walked out of there with a, with a couple of double tracks of this, and that was it. And that was the, that's the whole string thing. Amazing. And it was done in, yeah, just done in a couple of hours. And, and, and then we all went outside and tried to walk across that, you know, zebra crossing that they have, you know, to make it, you know, taking pictures, you know, looking like the Beatles, you know. Right. But, uh, you know, just an amazing thing. Anyway, I just want to say that about Louis because uh, I don't know if anybody really, I've never, nobody ever said anything about him up to me anyway, but I always thought the guy was a brilliant guy. And that's the, yeah, no, it's important to get those stories out and these people that were vital to making these records and the stories behind them that maybe don't get that recognition. One real quick yeah. thing on Randy, and then I want to ask you a few things about Bark at the Moon. So with Randy... This is the eternal question, and you would be the one to know. What was there anything that he did that you recorded on either of those two sessions for Diary or, or Blizzard that has not come out? Do you know if there's the existence of material of him playing or any sort of songs? Was there anything you recall recording during those first two records of him that's never seen the light of day? Uh, well, yeah, this is another question that, I, that does come up quite a lot, and um. Uh, okay, so the, uh, in fact, the, the question came up in a big way when we were doing tribute, and uh, Ozzy calls me up. He goes, you know, because we got that tribute show, and uh, I, I, we already, I already spoke about that with a bunch of other guys, and and I think it was a King Biscuit hour, whatever it was, and it was only I think an hour and six minutes, maybe. So it was only three sides of an album. So then the obvious thing was like, what are we going to do with the last side? You know, we, we, you know, because in those days you would never send out an album with like a blank side. You know, right? So the only thing that we had really to put on that last side was the stuff from D. And uh, that, so the, the question you just asked me was the same question that Ozzy and Sharon kept asking me over and over and over again. You know, what are, what have we got as outtakes? And we don't have any outtakes because uh, we did exactly what we had to do and because we didn't have time for anything else, really. Right. So to my knowledge, uh, no, there's nothing else as far as Rich Farm and stuff that I work with, Randy. Uh, as far as I know, there, there's nothing else there. Um, <clears throat> I do get asked quite a lot for people to, 
to remix it without the fade so they can hear the last few notes of Randy's outro solos. And, uh, you know, and, and that, it was the same with that, actually, is that we made those, those fades as long as we possibly could to keep everything. So if there's two notes after the end of those fades, you know, I would be surprised. Because we, we, we faded them as long as we possibly could. Let me you ask know, you. That was one of, I'm sorry. That, no. I, that, I just want to say that was one of the things that Ozzy said to me. Uh, right at the beginning of Blizzard, Ozzy said, he said, listen, keep, keep, what, keep all his rough stuff. Keep all his rough solos. And, uh, of course, because we only had 24 tracks, the solos themselves, the rough solos were probably erased. But a lot of those end solos that you hear were done on the backing track at the time. They weren't they weren't overdubs. They were actually done probably as the band were, you know, winding out. So so just in the interest of time, because I, I, I want to wrap up the Aussie portion here, and we could I mean, I love Speak of the Devil, which is the live record done at the Ritz, which you also produced. That was with Brad Gillis on guitar doing the Sabbath stuff. So I, I don't mean yeah. to gloss over this stuff, but I do love these records. But I do have to ask you, Bark at the Moon, obviously a, a great record, but obviously a huge change because Randy's not there and in comes Jakey e. Lee. Your recollections about making Bark at the Moon and your impressions of Jakey e. Lee coming in as a replacement and working with him. Yeah, so it was a tough time, um, obviously. Uh, you know, when I say about, you know, them coming back in for Diary and the whole feeling about that was just a very, very, very 100,000% positive feeling. And then coming in for Bark of the Moon was, uh, uh, had a whole different feel about it, obviously. And um, different band, you know. So, uh, yeah, it was very tough for Jake, uh, but Jake, very capable at that time, uh, played very good, uh, uh, did the job really well and, and, and did a lot of great writing. And um, obviously uh, there was some, you know, <laughs> some later problems with all that stuff with Jake. And uh, having just worked with Jake on some uh, stuff the last couple of years, um, you know, he's still very bitter about that whole, uh, that, that, that whole time. But, uh, uh, it came out pretty good. Uh, at the end of Bark of the Moon, we kind of ran out of studio time. Uh, and we had to fly over to New York um, to to mix. And it was very rushed. Uh, we mixed, I think, in four days, myself and Bob Daisley. And uh, nobody liked the mix. Uh I, I didn't like the mix that much either, but we did the best we could in the time allowed. Everybody was pretty burnt out by, at that point. It was it was a lot of hard work. There was a lot more work actually doing that record than um, than uh, Diary. But uh, I'm not really sure why. But I mean, I like the record. It's a good record, and and I love uh, Jake. And he, you know, he played really great. But it, it was it was a bit of a struggle that record. And then. Um, at the edge of the record, uh, uh, I didn't really like the mixes that much, uh, but I took them over uh, to master at master disc, and then I, I couldn't get Bob Ludwig. I had to use Howie Weinberger, and I got there's no I got nothing against Howie, but I always used to use Bob, and I didn't really like how how it sounded with Howie, and I, I don't know it, it didn't something didn't quite click on that, and then uh, Ozzy, you know, 
I think I basically, Osley and Sharon basically didn't like it either. So they fired me at that point. And then they had uh, uh, Tony Bon Jovi, of all people, uh, remix it at the power station in New York. And that was even more horrendous than my mixes, I thought. But, you know, it's okay. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, Joe, both Jake and I were kind of upset with the amount of keyboards. And But but his playing on there still comes through. And uh, I think at the end of the day, it's a, it's, a, it's a really nice record and it's got some great songs. And, you know, he, he uh, Jake worked very hard on that. And I think he had a better time on the one after that. But then, of course, uh, everything kind of fell apart with him and Ozzy and Sharon as well. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was tough. It was very tough. You know, it wasn't, uh, you know, of course, there was always the specter, Randy's specter kind of, you know, hovering yeah. there, you know. And, and you know, it, as much as you don't want to think about it, it's still kind of the elephant in the room, you know. Sure, no doubt. Well, listen, I could talk to you again about Ozzy the entire rest of the show and these records, but <laughs> yeah. you, you obviously have a career and a, a resume beyond that, and we really, at this point, only have about a half an hour left, and I want to dive in and get some quick stuff from you on some of these other great bands and records that you've worked on. In the interest of time, I want to move forward and just get some quick stuff from you on these records, if I can. One of my favorite bands, and I think a band tremendously underrated still, is Y&T. And you did an amazing record with them called Black Tiger, which was actually their fourth record overall, but their second under the name Y&T. We talk about guitar players. I think Manichetti is one of the truly underrated great ones out there. Phenomenal singer as well. And sadly, from the, the band that made Black Tiger, only Dave is still alive, which is just hard to believe. Tell, tell me about working with Y&T briefly and, and your recollections about that record. Uh, yeah, uh, well, you know, Dave is, Dave's just, uh, amazing. Um, and I went to see him, I think, uh, two or three years ago over at, uh, in New York at, uh, BB King's, which is now closed, but, uh, I saw you there. Just, just, oh, that's right. You did. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, the guy's just mind blowing. I mean, his, his, you know, he, he can, you know, his singing and his playing is just, he's mind blowing. And I don't know, he's pushing, he's pushing the, he's pushing the ears now. And the guy still sings like a bird. I, mean, yeah. I was just, I was so overjoyed to see him. And I know I thought that, you know, I thought that band was great. But as you say, yes, um, Phil's gone. Uh, uh, Lenny was probably one of the best rock drummers ever been out there, actually. Lenny Hayes. I mean, that guy was a monster. And, and that's, that, that's a godsend to an engineer to have a drummer like that because that guy just smacks it as hard as he possibly can every possible every hit and that's really what you want if you if you're doing that kind of music and uh, he was he was marvelous there was a great band really good band and uh, uh, we uh, we rehearsed up in uh, San Francisco over in Oakland and uh, that was a pretty uh, horrible area it was uh, some uh, I can't remember where it was but uh, anyway so we rehearsed there for a while and then they wanted to do we came back over to England to do it at Ridge Farm and they didn't have any work permits or anything like that so uh, I remember we got to Heathrow and we were all standing in different lines to try and look inconspicuous and then uh, and I, I, I went through first because I had a British passport so I was okay and then um, I got 
called over the over the loudspeakers, you know, at Heathrow, oh, come to the, you know, immigration. And I went to immigration, and they had them all sitting there on, on a bench, you know, like the usual suspects, you know. <laughs> and then this guy was like, what's going on? I said, what do you mean? He goes, look. He said, look, at, he said, look you, you stand out like a sore thumb, all you guys. He said, what's, what's the story? What are you doing? I said, well, the, the band's coming over. They're going to, you know, record an album. Oh, yeah? Oh, really? Oh, is that what, you know, so it was one of those, you know, typical British kind of cockney guy, you know, giving you crap about stuff. But eventually I had to let him in, you know. So it took him a couple of hours to get him in through immigration because they were like, oh, well, where's the work permit? You know, what are you doing? But it turned out that legally, if, we, if, we're, if we're exporting the music back to America, it, it didn't matter. So. I don't know what happened there, really. But, uh, yeah, so that was the first thing. Uh, and then we got to the studio, and everything was pretty good. Uh, we were trying to um, – uh, I know that we, we were using uh, remote uh, 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 wireless guitars at that point. And uh, we had a lot of problems with batteries and getting enough batteries and stuff like that. So that was a bit of a problem with Dave, you know, with his uh, with the with the guitars. And um, uh, that was one of the first times that we started doing uh, guitar solos in in the control room at Ridge Farm. Uh, actually, uh, you know, Dave would just stand right behind the console and do the, uh, do all his solos. Uh, so that was an interesting concept. And uh, the other thing that happened one night was uh, we were sitting there talking about Randy because I think one of the reasons they they wanted to go there was because of the history of the place and everything. And, um, there was this massive storm going on outside, big thunderstorm. And all of a sudden this lightning bolt, right after we were talking about Randy, I'm talking about it, Randy today. And all of a sudden there's this big bang and all the lights go out. And, uh, we kind of like flick a lighter, you know, and hold it up. And we're looking at each other. We could just see each other's eyes. You know, we're like, holy shit, what the hell? You know, it's like we've we kind of got a little spooked. And then uh, finally we got the power back on and uh, I guess lightning had hit the pole across the uh, across the street. And uh, I went back and pulled out the, the fuses out of the uh, power amps and they were all like uh, totally, uh, like they, they just totally, the, the uh, the wire inside the fuse had just vaporized and coated the inside of the fuses. So, oh wow! I don't know. We yeah. So we we didn't talk about Randy too much after that. We yeah. we got a little scared about that because we thought that was a little weird. But yeah, what a fantastic band, yep. and uh, we had a lot of fun with that. And uh, I'm in there somewhere. I'm I think I'm the um, the toucan at the beginning of Black Tiger. Ah, that was oh, is that right? Things. Oh, that's a, a, yeah. that is awesome. Uh, again, just in the <laughs> just in the interest of time, I'm just moving a little more quickly because there's just so much I want to hit you with, and and we don't have that much more time. But I want to get you get a little something on some of my other favorites. Now, I love. Sure. Uh, unfortunately, Coney Hatch is a band that is very off the radar in America. But I at least want to mention the Out of Hand and Friction. Uh, phenomenal records. I love that band. I wish they would have made it in the U.S. They're still around. I still talk to Andy from time to time. Phenomenal band. Phenomenal uh, sounding records you made with them. I, I love those that group. I would encourage anybody who is not familiar with them to seek those records out. But just in the interest of time moving forward, you you worked with Loudness on Thunder in the East, which was their American breakthrough. 
Lightning Strike, Soldier of Fortune, three records with that band. And I, I mean, Akira is just ridiculous guitar player as well. I imagine for you, unbelievably challenging producing a band that doesn't really and didn't really have a grasp of the English language. How were you able to do that? Uh, well, yeah, well, yes, uh, that was indeed that 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 was the main that was the main uh, hurdle uh, was the uh, uh, was the accent and 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 the lyrics, etc. Uh, obviously, Akira, not a hurdle at all. A, a pleasure to work with, um, and actually quite easy to work with the whole band. Uh, I only only had to learn about five phrases in Japanese to be able to to be able to work with them and uh, uh, but the uh, the lyrics and the vocals were a real uh, yeah were a problem and uh, we did get we did have some lyricists working on that stuff I wrote some lyrics uh, had all kinds of stuff I tread I tread a little warily on that because uh, uh, they don't uh, as because of the Japanese the way the Japanese think uh, they don't particularly like to be shown to be uh, uh, not good in that in that regard. So I don't want to insult them and, and say that it was you know that they were helped or whatever. But we did have lyricists. Uh, we did try. There's there's a lot of coaching going on to make things sound okay. You know what I mean? Might have to punch one word maybe a few times to try and to try and get the pronunciation right and stuff like that. Um, Despite the fact that we worked very, very hard on, on, on getting the pronunciation right, if you listen to it now, it's very obviously a Japanese singer. But um, it, it seemed to get enough over, you know, towards sort of between the halfway across the Pacific, at least, that uh, people kind of accepted it. And, you know, the worst sort of comments we get are sort of lock and roll, crazy light, you know, whatever, you know, confusing the R and the L. But, uh, for the most part, everybody seemed to like it. It kind of, it kind of hit a, it kind of hit a sort of a soft streak in America for some reason, and uh, and uh, it worked, it worked quite well. You know, rock and roll, crazy nights, and yeah, and they were they were a very very good band. And uh, Iguchi, uh, you know, unfortunately he he died uh, probably over twenty years ago now. But uh, what a Munitaka was what a fantastic drummer. Uh, Really, really great guy. Um, they're all they're all great guys, and they're all really good, really, really good players. So, once again, a great band, you know. And really, the only uh, the only hard task, as you say, as you rightly point out, with the, with the vocals and getting the vocals right, and it, it always was a hard task. And in fact, it came to a point on the third record where uh, Mickey got you know replaced because I think the band just kind of lost patience and. Uh, then they got, uh, uh, I forget his name. What's his name? Mike Vassara. Mike Mike, Vassara. yeah, Mike, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then Mike, yeah. Mike, yeah, Mike, and Mike's a real good singer too. But that kind of, uh, that changed the band somewhat as well. So, you know, uh, but uh, yeah, great band. Yeah, and Akira, and they're still going strong too. And, uh, yeah. Akira's still going. And, I still see them. I still see them from time to time when they're able to get into the country because they've had visa issues, but when they're able to get here, whether it be on the Monsters of Rock Cruise or what have you, and they've gotten way heavier, but Akira is just one of those guys you could just watch. He's he's remarkable to watch and listen to. He's just uh, just incredible. When it comes to Megadeth, Max, you, you uh, 
produced uh, Countdown to Extinction and Euthanasia for them. You had mentioned and referenced this a little bit earlier. That was a different situation because now you're coming in and getting involved with a band that is already well-established, had a great band together, had a large degree of success. And it sounds like earlier from your comments that you had a wonderful experience working with Dave Mustaine, who, of course, as we all know, as there's people that uh, love and people have had difficulties with. Uh, all good as far as you're concerned working with Dave and, and Megadeth? <laughs> well... You know, you go from, you know, there are there are various things that happen with Dave. I mean, uh, well, the, the reason I reason I say that about Countdown was because I mixed the previous record and um, that got very well received and and, and and did very well. And for that reason, so you mixed. Hold could, on, you mixed Rust in Peace. I didn't realize that. Yeah, yeah, Rust in Peace and. Um, that that came, that worked out very well. So the story behind that, I got a call one day. Uh, Mike Clink called me up, and he's a Guns N' Roses producer, among others, of course. And uh, he called me up and said, "Look, I, you know, I got to go do Guns N' Roses. I need somebody to mix this. So, you know, why don't you come over here?" So I went over to Rumbo Recorders, uh, which is where they were doing Studio A, and uh, I walked into the billiard room and. I think David Edison and Mustaine were playing billiards and playing snooker or whatever. And Mike Clink walks in and he goes, okay, there's no points. So I looked at him and I go, okay. He goes, you know, so it's like, you know, 10 grand makes a record. I go, all right. So, you know, I went over to one-on-one in North Hollywood and we got the tapes over there. We started mixing and Mike does lots and lots of edits. So that I had to do quite a lot of shenanigans to get around some of these edits because the snare would be totally different in the verse than it was in the chorus and kind of things like that. And uh, Dave was in one of his more problematic periods at that point, and he was actually okay with me. He would just walk in and we'd talk about a few things, and he would listen. And uh, so uh, at that point, it was no not real problem. And uh, I'd, I had quite a good time working with him. So when it came to countdown. Uh, he sent me a, a big cassette of uh, a whole bunch of songs, countdown songs, and uh, I listened to them for a couple of days, and I didn't have a clue what to do with them actually. And I was like, "Oh shit!" I don't, you know. And he's waiting for me to get send him, you know, my notes or whatever on on all the material. And that was it. That was the that was the, the time I realised another sort of. Uh, sort of rule to live what live by if you like for producers is if you don't know what to do you just haven't listened long enough so i just kept listening and about the third day about halfway through the third day of listening to this material i started to get some ideas and i started writing them down and uh, by that end of the third day i'd written down about four or five pages of, uh, of notes and I, I sent them over to dave and i didn't hear back for a couple of days and then uh uh, my my wife at the time called called up the stairs and said, "Oh, it's David Stains on the phone." And I was like, "Oh, here we go. He's gonna he's gonna he's gonna go off on me probably." And uh, I picked up the phone and said, "Hey," and he goes, "Hey," he said, "I got uh, I got your notes." And I said, "Okay." And he said, uh, "Yeah, um, uh, I agree with ninety nine percent of them." <laughs> and I was and I was like. Oh shit! <laughs> I was like, oh, you know. So I was kind of like, I was extremely surprised because I thought it's probably going to go. This ain't going to work, you know. 
So, uh, so that's what started that off. And then we went into uh, um, the next decision we made on that record was uh, that we were going to do it digital. And uh, we had uh, Sony at this point had a 24 track digital on half inch tape, which was a really, really good sounding machine and was the first of the real decent digital sounding machines. And uh, uh, the great thing about that was that we could do very, 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 very accurate punches and we could get very accurate with it. Um, and uh, so we started to work on the, on the record in, in uh, the enterprise and with the digital. And we, we realized very, or uh, I said very quickly, I said, you know what, we, we got to, we want to make this more accurate. I, I, I think it's a little sloppy still. And Dave looked to me, he goes, you know what? You're right. So we got to get, we got to make it, make it way more accurate. So that, that became kind of the tenet behind everything, uh, to, to make that record really kind of a, if you like the, the steely down of metal, if you like, or, <laughs> or whatever, to, to, but, but to make that record really that kind of record to make it just a really, really astonishingly accurate record and, uh, couple that with Dave's character on the vocals over the top. And just the exemplary playing of Nick Mentor and and uh, and, and Dave Ellison and uh, uh, you know and, and and then adding Marty to this mix is just I mean you 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 know you you, you live and pray for this kind of band you know so uh, and, uh, there was a very funny story actually was I was I had Marty in there one day very early on and we were talking about the whole. You know, accuracy thing, and everybody was into it, and we were all like, "Yeah, let's let's make it really, really, you know, tits accurate." And uh, I was talking to Marty one day, and uh, I had my back to the door, and I said, "I said to Marty, I said, you know what, man? I said you got you you're going to do most of these solos because you you are just you're that guy." And Dave Mustaine walked in right behind me as I was saying it. And I looked around at him, and of course I had to kind of brazen it out, you know, and have some balls. And I just looked around at him, and he looked at me, and he goes, "Yeah," he said, "You're right." Wow! And he and he and he ate it right there, and I was like, "My God!" So I got a lot of respect for Dave. You know, uh, he he can be a dick like everybody else, but you know, uh, a lot of the times that guy, I mean, he's a super super intelligent guy. So you know. You really can't mess with Dave much, but you know I, he was he was magnanimous enough at that point to 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 go with it, and and it, and it paid off in spades. I think. I mean, Marty's solos on that record are just uh, once again they're like kind of magical stuff, you know, once in a lifetime stuff, you know. And the great thing about it was that we had the wherewithal where uh, Marty could play the whole solo and get it almost right. And if there were two notes that were wrong, we would make a window punch of like 322 milliseconds and just pop those two notes in. And I would just program that up and I'd say, okay, play along. And he would just play the same solo and the thing would just go, <laughs> could just pop in, pop out. And we used that window punching all over the place. In fact, uh, with, even with Nick Manzo, I had him play the drums all the way through with no fills. Hmm. And then we would 
Then we would go back and program the punches for each fill, and we would write each fill. Wow. And then we would punch punch each fill until it was perfect, and then we would move to the next fill. So we did that really with 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 every every aspect of that record. So it's really really accurate record, and and uh, uh, you could only do that with with guys that are that good, you know. And all that band, David Ellison, all all those guys were were that good, and that, it was that's why it was possible. So you know that was a really marvelous thing, and. Uh, then of course we went on to euthanasia, and that's a whole different uh, story with that. <laughs> building the studio in Phoenix and just just nutty stuff, you know. So let me let me get a few minutes from you on another classic record that is so highly regarded and somewhat controversial. They actually completely re-recorded it recently as a, as an alternate version. I don't even know if you're aware of that, but I'm talking about the Lynch Mob record, Wicked Sensation. You've worked with some incredible guitar players, and you've worked with some guys that. Uh, some perceived to be difficult and what have you. Correct me if I'm wrong. The story I heard about Wicked Sensation was is that th that some of that record actually ended up being the demos that you ended up mixing and kind of cutting into that record and that there were already some issues with the band and drug problems and what have you and getting a performance out of Oni Logan was difficult at times. Can you set the record straight on making that first Lynch Mob record? Yeah, um, the, uh, okay, so no, no, none of them were uh, demos. Um, what happened was, um, uh, yeah, there was a problem with Oni getting, uh, okay, so it was a weird setup because uh, George wanted me to do the basic tracks and he wanted Neil Kernan to produce the vocals, but he wanted me to produce the guitar solos and stuff. So, um that was kind of weird, but I know Neil, and uh, I got on very well with Neil. And uh, um, but I, I felt bad for him because Oni was very difficult to work with, and the vocals that he had done on the demos, they had a, they had eight track demos of a lot of these songs. The vocals that he'd done on the demos, he'd done them out in Phoenix at some little hole in the wall place, and they were really good. I mean, they really they you know they were just great stuff so um we we got halfway into that record and i was doing backing tracks uh, uh and uh doing working with george and we were getting all that stuff going on and uh uh neil was working with oni at a different studio he would go he would go and do vocals at a different studio and then he would come back over and uh, bring over the vocals and we'd listen and uh, it wasn't. It wasn't really. It wasn't very happening, and uh, we we got almost all the way into the doing everything else in the record, and we still didn't have some vocals. And um, it, as a producer, you you got to guarantee a result. So I, at this point, I'm like, holy shit! So I, I'm looking. I'm I'm looking at these eight tracks, and I'm like, so some of these eight track tracks that only did. Are, are really good. I mean, but unfortunately, they're at a different tempo, and they're in a, and they're in a different key. So, I rented uh, Skip Sailor's studio down in South Central, and went down there into their back room, which is like five hundred bucks a night or something. And uh, I got a harmonizer, and I got a spreadsheet, and I got a sampler, and I got the eight track, and I transposed. Uh, about six of those songs, the demo vocals, I transposed them onto the 
uh, current take uh, in order to guarantee a result. Because I figured, you know, hey, maybe this is not going to work. And and you you did mention drugs there, and there really wasn't that any drugs going on actually. Uh, maybe some big drinking going on, but uh, no real drugs going on. Um, uh, just only for some reason it, it was, wasn't working that one well in the studio with uh, Neil. So uh, at the end of the day, we went back to Arizona, where he, where only had sung the original vocals, and went back there for him to sing some more vocals, and. He went back there a day early, and we got there, and he he was already in there singing with the original engineer, the demo engineer guy. And Neil Kernan got very pissed off and said, "You know what? This is just this is just like a you know spitting in my face, basically." And he he basically quit the quit the project. So then I'm sitting there and I'm like, "Oh, this is this is not good, you know, because this is a very expensive project." We already spent like half a million dollars, and I was very worried about getting it finished. So I, I started to do all this work on the eight tracks, and I pulled these eight tracks over. And um, only didn't particularly like it, but actually at the same time he kind of did like it because there was there that these were smoky atmospheric vocals that like rain, for instance. Rain is the is a demo vocal. Uh, he he sang it again, and nobody liked it. Mm. We liked we liked the demo vocal, and actually, out of that on that Lynch Mob record, there are five of those tracks are demo vocals. Uh, Hell Child's a demo vocal. Uh, I, well, I leave it to you guys to figure out which ones are which. But uh, it was kind of a it's kind of an interesting exercise in uh, in engineering to be yeah. able to take the vocal. You know, and some of them were two steps away from where they should be, you know, t- uh, tuning-wise, and at a different... So I had a spreadsheet that would calculate the offset on the harmonizer and the the, the, the length of, you know, the time delay. So it was, it was very complicated, actually, but I managed to kind of mathematics my way through it and, and, and put it all back together. And, and uh, we just kept working. That was another one that we just kept working on, kept working on until until we got it as good as we possibly could. And uh, it, it took it took a long time to make that record, but uh, uh, I, I'm very proud of that record. And I think some of the some of George's solos on there are just the most amazing thing. And he he is one of the most amazing guitar players ever. And uh, that's that's always been uh, one of one of the things I'm very thankful for is I'm able to work with some of these guys who are just unbelievably talented and i mean george just oozes talent george george can play you know guitar in his sleep and it, and it blows away most people yeah. you know it's just still, you know, it's just a marvelous player still yeah, still yeah. to this day hey yeah. max so yeah. i mean we're, we'll have to do a part two at some point because i'm just about out of time here but i do have two or three minutes left and i want obviously there's a ton of stuff i skipped but I do want to give you in the last two, three minutes that I have the opportunity to promote or mention anything that you're doing now because you're active in music production again. So in, in, in the two minutes I have before I have to end, what would you like to tell the audience and what are you working on now? Um, ah, okay. Well, uh, yeah, mostly I'm mixing now. Um, uh, so uh, right now, and you just had her on your show, I think, a couple of times. I'm working on Lita Ford's album. So, yes. Uh, 
that's that's really I, I mean it's really remarkable stuff and I, I really like it we're about halfway through now working with Gary and uh, and leader on that so we're I, I don't know when that's going to get finished because things these days seem to take ages and, you know I send a mix back and then it takes two weeks to get any feedback and stuff like that and it's and, and uh, right now it's difficult of course for Lida because she just now she's back out on tour she's a very very hard one of the hardest working women in rock and roll of course and uh, very very nice to work with and uh, the material is excellent and uh, it's, it, 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 I, I'm really very enthused about it but I can't really say much more because we're only halfway through so I'm working on that uh, I do some mastering and I'm, I'm doing some mastering for uh, a, a band from LA called The Spacing Effect and uh, they're kind of a little side project of mine that I help them out with. And I'm doing a bunch of mixing for a band called Ten Ton Mojo that's a local New York band, and they're sort of an up-and-coming, kind of a southern rock boogie band. And they're actually really, really good, and we've been working on that. I've got about 10 or 12 tracks for those guys, so I don't know if it's going to come out as an album or I think there's been a couple of singles already. So I'm working on stuff all the time. And unfortunately, I have a day job also right now, which I'm trying to get rid of. And, uh, I, you know, I'll be able to accept more stuff. And uh, there's a lot of stuff out there that I want to start, that I would like to be working with. And so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to free up more time to be able to do that, you know. Um, well. But... Uh, there you go, and yeah, we can absolutely do another one. Yeah, but, there's uh, there's so I, much I, I just, there's so much I missed, and I don't mean to, uh, you know, to to gloss over some of the other records, but there's there's so many. But obviously, in the interest of time, I just don't have the time to do it. So, good news is you're in New York, I'm in New Jersey, or we're local, and we'll hopefully be able to do this, have you in studio, and and maybe I'm sure the audience would love to to ask you some questions. But I've you know I'll tell you, and I've said this many times, and it's the truth. As a kid listening to records and paying attention to credits, whenever I saw produced by Max Norman or engineered by Max Norman on that sleeve, I knew it was going to be a great sounding record. And uh, I thank you for all the great work you've done and all the music you've given us, man. It's just timeless stuff. And I appreciate your time here today and being so generous with it. Well, thanks very much. And, and, and you know, I, I'm just, uh, I'm always infused that, you know, people listen. You know, and that, that, that's really all it's about. And I'm just glad that uh, glad of glad I was able to be in the right place at the right time, and, <laughs> and glad that glad that people are out there, and, and glad that people you know get into it. And that's what it's all about. And it's all about the music. So, you know, yeah, thanks very much for the kind words. But to be honest with you, mostly it's not me. I just hit record, and and <laughs> I happen to happen to be in the right place at the right time. So you know, well, and and like like I say, when you have these great bands. There ain't a lot you need to do, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, Max, thank you so much. I appreciate the time again. I know we'll be talking soon, and uh, we'll uh, we'll we'll catch up with you some more down the line. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate it. I love being on, and it's great to talk to you. I'm glad you're doing well, and uh, we survived the pandemic. And uh, maybe next time we'll meet in Vegas, Eddie. What do you think? You got it. Anytime. You can come my my place and hang out for sure. Well, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I love talking to Max. Great stuff. We could easily do another round with him. Appreciate his time. Great stories on so many great records, many of which we have in our collections, no doubt. Thanks for listening. New episodes every Thursday. Make sure you subscribe. Thanks to Joel Pollack. He is the producer of the podcast, as well as Trunk Nation, which you can hear Monday through Friday, 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time, live on volume, Sirius XM Channel 106, 
with nightly re-airs 10 to midnight Eastern. And be sure to follow me on social media at Eddie Trunk. You guys have yourselves a great week. Catch you next Thursday for another all-new episode of the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 